You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Visit JabberjawMedia.com for more shows like this one. Here we go. Another episode of the X-Man podcast. I'm your host, Doc Coyle. As always, I appreciate when you listen to the show. It helps to have an audience. Don't want to be that person talking to no one in their bedroom. I mean, technically, I am talking to no one in my bedroom right now. (laughs) But eventually someone will hear it. Let's keep those fingers crossed. No, I've been home for about a week from tour. And I was doing pretty good, guys, for a couple of days. I was getting work done, hitting the gym, you know, eating lettuce. And then the weekend hit and it's like, hey, let's go to this thing and here's dinner and go to the movies and get some ice cream. And, you know, it all fell apart. But I'm going to get it back together, guys. You know, going to hit the road. I leave tomorrow. Going to fly to Wyoming. That's hard. What you know about Wyoming? Nothing. Right, neither do I. But gonna go there, play some rock and roll, see what happens. But yeah, I'm gonna get back on the road, try and get 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 this gut in shape. You know, it's it, it's annoying because, like I said, I, I Dakota likes snacks. All right, I like uh, cakes and donuts and cookies, and it's a problem. And I, and I should be ashamed, and I am, which is which is relevant. Well, guys, uh, you know, I, I recorded a whole monologue, and I just I just tossed it. I wasn't. You know, I wasn't landing my point and I was talking about some controversial things. And here's the thing. We're going to talk about something controversial and I don't feel like I'm making a compelling argument. (laughs) Then you leave yourself open to a lot of uh, criticism that you probably deserve. So I scrapped it. And now I think, you know what, hopefully I have some time to write. You know, I have this bug to do some writing. I have a few different topics that I'd like to get down, but writing is very time consuming and I have to make time for it because I do love it. And sometimes there's big ideas that are this space of doing a monologue really does not give me the amount of time or the detail uh, to really uh, attack a subject. Um, you know, so I don't think I'm going to do a, a, any crazy monologue today. One thing I, I, I can talk about, you know, it's kind of interesting about the Twitterverse. I don't know how many of you are on Twitter, but it's interesting just to see how, you know, when you train your mind, I don't say train your mind, but when you when you train yourself to kind of see conventional wisdom and then essentially question it at all times. And I think when people think of conventional wisdom, they tend to think about something that's in the majority opinion. And that's not really what it is. It's that essentially you have different especially now, I say more so now because we can all curate our own digital reality to a certain degree, you know, that there are certain conclaves that have certain narratives. So if you get into a debate with these group of people, you're essentially going to get one 
opinion back, right? And this is, so, you know, just to make like a little sports analogy. So right now there's this big debate going on, like, is LeBron James the best player of all time or is Michael Jordan the, the best player of all time, right? So if you believe one of those, you're going to have a certain line of thinking and certain talking points that everyone that's on that side will kind of have. And then, you know, so... I don't know. I just think it's really important when you see everyone on one side of a debate having one line of thinking and a certain set of talking points. And it's it. And when you see it, especially like if you go on, um, you know, some big Twitter, you know, some maybe someone says something, you know, makes a statement, and then you see the arguments, and it's just so predictable. So I guess this is a a, a long way of saying, um, make sure to look at the other angles. And when you see a a common uh, thread, you know, to try and even listen, even if the the exercise itself um, ends up, you 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 go back to the other side. I think the even the exercise of kind of looking at all the angles is is super helpful. So I think this monologue might be worse than the one I was going to do, but guess you're just stuck with me. Anyway, guys, what am I? What's what's going on here? Oh, we have a show sponsor. That's really exciting. All right. So we actually have a show sponsor. It is a band. I believe it's a one-man band called Jade Telegraph. And this is a track called Half Duplex from the EP of the same name. So check this out.
So that was Half Duplex from the band Jade Telegraph. And I checked my notes. It is a one-man project. And uh, this guy, Andre, he writes, records, and programs the music. Um, And yeah, that's from the EP of the same name. And you can find that on jadetelegraph.bandcamp.com and also soundcloud.com backslash jadetelegraph. Telegraph. Thank you so much to him for sponsoring the show this week. I hope you guys enjoyed that. And uh, if you're interested in sponsoring the show, you know how to reach me. You can also drop a an email, excuse me, to the X-Man Podcast at gmail.com. And I would also like to shout out our show sponsor, rockabilia.com. These guys have a million Items. See, I said half a million last time. I'll, I'm presuming they got another half million between now and then. You never know how it goes. All right. I don't, I'm just saying some stuff, whether it's true or not, you know, don't even matter. All right. But I know this. They are the best. They are the number one stop shop for all things band merch. And you know what? Their stuff is legitimately made. It is not bootleg. Do not buy the bootleg stuff made. You know where you don't even know where it's made. This is the real deal and we actually over at rockabilly.com we have an exclusive bad wolves t-shirt my band it's the only place you can get it and if you use my discount code you can get 15 percent off yes that is use the, the discount code pc jabberjaw and you will get yourself 15 percent off so with that out of the way i will give a quick intro to our guest we have a gentleman whose name is godless or that's what he calls himself. And I got uh, to know this guy. He was the former co-host of the Metal Sucks podcast. And then they went and with a guy named Chuck. And then they started a podcast called The Podcast Metal. And then they recently stopped podcasting, which is very sad to me. But uh, he's very significant um, and also his, his co-host as well. Because really, they gave me my start podcasting because I would go on the Metal Sucks show and first they would interview me and then I would just kind of come on and do little guest segments and me and him are great because we would just argue all the time but the thing I love about Godless is especially in the metal world he has a lot of personality he has irreverent opinions and he's able to communicate them in a really entertaining way and me and him, we argue basically about everything, music, politics, anything you can you can think of, but in a very fun way, because he gets it. A lot of people think debating a subject is contentious or annoying. I think it's one of the most fun things to do, as long as you're doing it with someone who is a, a good sport. So um, he lives in Ireland now, so we had to do this on Skype, but I had a lot of fun with it, and I was really sad that their podcast ended because in many ways, they they inspired me to do what I do and definitely helped me out a lot. So, the, and this, you know, this is guy we want to hear from. We don't want him to go away in the hills of Ireland and never talk again. So, I had to bring him on the show. Definitely, I think you guys are really going to enjoy this. Godless is the man. So, enjoy my conversation with Mr. Godless. How are things? Uh, everything is not as good as they are there, but it's all good. What do you mean? What do you mean not as good as they are here? How do you know? Okay. Oh, cuz well, you know, I mean <laughs> there's plenty of time to go into that. Okay. What hey, listen, whatever whatever you say, buddy. All right, all right. I'm just, all I'm right. just, I'm just, I'm just here to support. But um, 
So welcome to the X Men podcast, and it's, it's a it is very appropriate because now you are an X Men. Oh, so you hit record? Okay, all right, I'm ready. Yeah, we're we're yeah. Should, we, should I redo that? <laughs> no, it's all good. But you see, this is the thing. It's like the podcast thing is all about like you interview up. You know, that's the whole plan, and like get like, them get them nice and and wet and squirrely, and then uh, and then. Well, no, no, it's like it's like you know, like whoever the host is, you got to interview like bigger people. So, oh, interview up. I see what you're saying. Yeah, it's like this idea that that you've invited me on. I'm I'm shocked, appalled, and uh, quite honored all at the same time. Thank you very much. Well, here's here's kind of the the, the thing. A, I, I think that interview up that's bullshit to begin with, <laughs> uh, because it because that insinuates there's some kind of like relevant social status to accomplishment, which I guess in the aggregate there there is. Um, as, oh, far definitely. As, as far as perception, but ultimately I want to talk to smart and interesting people and there are accomplished people who aren't necessarily well known, you know, yeah. uh, and ultimately I get kind of bored just talking to musicians, um, uh, just having, and because those arcs are going to be fairly similar despite talking to quite a, a different variety of, of people. And so it's important for me to have media people on the show it's important for me to have industry people on the show uh producers i don't just want to talk to musicians and to me it's it's super appropriate to have you on because in many ways you guys ins inspired me and that was the first place even though i didn't do the interview with uh, you and chuck but metal sucks podcast was the first uh time i talked about me leaving god forbid so yeah so have have you gotten to do any podcasts or talk to anyone since uh, you guys ended your show? Yeah, yeah, I I was on like the the weekend that Chuck broke the news. I was in England to uh, go see a a band from the uh, late '80s, early '90s that I was a fan of called The Beyond, and they were doing a reunion show, one off reunion show, and the uh, uh, so I I ran into. Um, uh, Howard, who uh, from the Talking Bullocks uh, podcast, and and two of us were riding up to the show together, and uh, he's uh, as they say down there, mates with all of them. So it ended up being fun, and yeah, so we ended up uh, just you know, he's like, "What the hell happened?" Hit record <laughs> so on the train. Gonna, uh, it was on the in his car, in his uh, car. to and yeah, to and from, and and then back at his flat afterwards. So yeah, so it was all like real fresh at the at the time, and. Yeah, it still feels really fresh, you know? So I think that's, you know, I never wanted to be on the X-Man podcast because I was an X-Man, that's for sure, but uh, 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 always glad to talk with you. Well, um, I wanted to have yeah. you regardless. I was I was going to, you know, I, to, be, to, to, be, um, to be truthful, me, me and you mix it up like very few. <laughs> yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> so uh, because of this, I actually want to use that as an opportunity to kind of get into some of your background, which I know a little bit about, but I don't really know a whole lot about. Um, where are you from originally? Uh, New York, Detroit, Pennsylvania, and then back to Austin, uh, then down to back to New York for a few years, uh, and then it was uh, Austin, Texas, and then uh, just over three years ago, I moved here to Dublin, Ireland. Why all the move moving around? Like, did you have like a one place you grew up, or you were just kind of your parents were moving around a lot? 
Yeah, parents. Yeah, mostly. And then uh, uh, once I left college, I moved to New York City. And, uh, you know, because if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, I was in the music business for a number of years there and then uh, moved to Austin, Texas and uh, had a small sort of booking agency and then uh, started a bookkeeping company in order to raise my kid at the same time and just do bookkeeping at night while still booking bands during the day. And then, uh, you know, dot com picked me up and then all of a sudden I found myself an accountant and you know boring <laughs> responsible life kicked in until a number of years went by when uh, I was producing a, a festival in Austin and I met uh, this uh, uh, fat hairy guy uh, who worked at the radio station I was trying to buy some advertising at uh, named Chuck and we just hit it off and uh, you know we would just go to lunches and, and we would just shoot yeah, shoot the shit for, you know, two hours <laughs> just talking whatever, usually metal related stuff. And and one of those times I was like, he was getting a um, uh, an HD radio station for himself, and and I had said to him, you know, we should have like a morning show just for your station, you know, do it like that. And he's like, uh, yeah, and that's it. And then didn't hear anything about it for like a year. And you know, we'd still hang out. And then eventually he says, hey, so uh, what do you think about actually? trying that idea had and I'm like what idea was that and that was when we sat down and started doing we first did it uh, uh, just sort of to work out the kinks and try to figure out what the groove would be and we, we called that visions from the dark side we did that for about a year was that a podcast no, or was it yeah, a radio okay yeah it was just a podcast and then uh, I can't remember if he threw it on his radio station or not I don't think so uh, but uh yeah, we did that, and and we didn't do any interviews. Uh, Chuck was really resistant to it. I had done interviews when I worked in radio uh, back in the uh, early '90s, and uh, you know, for bands like interviewing Dee Snider, uh, you was know, Max like, Cavalera. Was this like college radio you were doing? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, Max Cavalera and you know Zetro Souza, all those guys back in the day, and I really enjoyed it. But I was you know just a kid at the time, and. Uh, so when we went to Metal Sucks, uh, they said, we want you guys to do interviews. And uh, so, okay, it was their idea. So that's when we started doing the interviews for the podcast. And and it, it, it's one of those things where, for, for me, I'm not good at much. But if I'm told this is something I should do and I'm kind of enjoying it, I do tend to try to get intense about it. Especially when I start looking and I can't find any really good advice on how to do it well. Uh I get kind of obsessed about it. So that's kind of what I did with interviewing. I would uh, pick up books about uh, most of the celebrity interview books are terrible. And had, had wait, terrible... Wait, are these are these books about how to interview or they're just Yeah. Really? Yeah, exactly. I didn't know I didn't even know this was a thing. Yeah, there's like there's like 3 of them and they they all suck so bad. Uh, I think even two of them are probably out of print or are only as uh, ebooks at this point. And so I would go to like psychology books, you know, how do you get, you know, uh, your patient to talk? Uh, I would read stuff on body language because at the time we were doing a lot of our interviews in person. I was reading books on uh, <laughs> there's a book called how to talk to terrorists that I thought was great actually has some really great advice and and then I would listen to people obviously there's there's not a lot of people that I found could do it really really well but I would listen to them and I would try to break down what they were doing thinking about what the interviewer was doing and try to figure out what their methodology is like for example Howard Stern is the greatest interviewer perhaps ever and 
he has some really interesting tricks that he does. So it was really kind of interesting to, you know, as a fan of his show for so long to then listen to his show in a new way and try to figure out what he was doing with his interviews that got people to say these things that are, you know, that they wouldn't say otherwise you know there's mm-hmm. millions of millions of people listening and and they'll say something that they would only say to their good friend and they're talking to the stranger in the room and he gets it to, to work and i don't think i was ever very successful at doing that um you know the number of blabbermouth headlines we actually got on the metal podcaster are so few but uh uh it was something that i got really intense about and and tried really hard to uh, to be as good at it as i possibly could well that, that's fascinating because it's almost like the, you, funny you mentioned that terrorist <laughs> because yeah. it almost seems like more you were training to be an interrogator <laughs> more than you were to be an interviewer. But I think it's it's interesting because I don't I doubt ninety nine percent of the people that do podcasting have done half the preparation you have. I clearly I've done zero. I've I'm going <laughs> all off gut and and I guess because partially because I don't really consider what I do interviews. You know. Um, you know, I, I try and, at least from the perspective of talking to uh, band guys and gals for that matter, um, <clears throat> is I know the monotony and the kind of, uh, you know, just what sucks about being quote unquote interviewed. And so it's like, I want to give them kind of a rest from that, you know, yeah. um, and be kind of, as we say, a, a safe space for uh, musicians to come and, 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 and really just be able to relax and not have to answer the same questions they've been asked 50 times and all that. But I, I mean, I have to say, uh, it's kind of interesting hearing that because I think your interview style was extremely unique and uh, very personal. And you guys didn't ask the questions that other people asked. And I think one of the, the best things about it was, it seemed like, and you tell me if I'm wrong, that you were genuinely a fan of who you were talking to, or even if you weren't like the biggest fan, you, you would find something compelling that was interesting to you to talk about. Well, yeah. I mean, yes, almost all the time. Uh, I was a fan. I, I'm thinking of, you know, all the conversations we had and I'm trying to think of, I can think of maybe two or three examples of musicians where I was either, you know, went in really blind, you know, at least once we had agreed to do the conversation, I was like, sure, Chuck, whatever you want to (laughs) do. And I guess I got to, you know, uh, uh, get up to speed quick. And then by the time we did the interview, I still wasn't necessarily all in, but that was pretty, that was very rare actually, but it's all about people and people are interesting you know and just hearing you say you know this idea of the the you know the monotony of doing the interviews which was something that we always felt like you know we would we would be in line we were the third interview or the fifth interview of the 12 that they had to do for the day and you know it was always one of those things where chuck and i would joke where he'd be like all right we're gonna spend a little bit of time warming them up and i'm like dude they've spent the last three hours warming up talking to other assholes who sound just like us you know we don't need to warm up let's just dive right in and that was just one of those things where we would try out every once in a while it was extremely deliberate in what we were trying to do it was very rarely did we do anything that was uh uh, a surprise to us, if that makes sense, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the main takeaway to me, and, and I'm sure there's a big reason why you guys won the uh, 
because there was a contest, right, to get to become the host of the Metal Sucks show, right? Yeah, yeah, there was. So to me, what why it's it it, it seemed like it it worked because I remember when that came out, and then I remember when you guys won it. And I don't think I don't know if I started listening like right away, but I started listening fairly early on. And one thing I noticed a that you know I'm sure partially this is because of Chuck's radio background. He has that burly like radio voice and he's yep. a you know i'd say mi- uh, miles ahead in terms of refinement um in broadcasting that so it gave you guys a huge edge in in that respect where it just seemed professional and you are just entertaining and um i mean you're smart and entertaining but the thing is so much of the you know this side of it on the media side it's like boring nerds I'm sorry. You know, you might be a nerd, but at least you're not a boring nerd. <laughs> I never, I, I don't get the whole nerd thing. I, I just, I still don't get it. Like when I was in school, like I, I became a metalhead to like try to figure out how to get away from being a nerd. I remember walking in. Were metals, first... were metalheads cool back then? <laughs> well, see, that was the thing. It's like for the first day, freshman year of high school. I remember walking into the building, and there was this incredibly gorgeous incredibly gorgeous young woman standing there and she was in the arms of this god-awful ugly looking like straight out of heavy metal parking lot dude with like super long hair and i looked at him and i go that's the dude i want to (laughs) be that's that's it and so it was like deliberate from that point where i grew out my hair and i you know, I, I went to the radio station that we were fortunate enough to have one at the high school and I took over the metal show and, you know, I was getting on the guest list for concerts and getting all my friends to go. I managed their metal bands and I had a fanzine that I did. So I was you were doing cool. the tape. It worked. Doing the doing the tape trading and stuff. But I don't know if I was cool, but it was like that little community, like nobody would have made fun of me, which was something that I experienced throughout all of middle school uh elementary and and middle school with very good reason and uh i was a terrible terrible child but the at once i was able to kind of cross into this community of metal there was a sort of insulation that i felt within that sort of social structure i was no longer alone you know yeah and i have the same background man i mean when i discovered the, the hardcore scene in new jersey i was pretty much a misfit i didn't you know especially being uh biracial you don't really feel like you fit in quite with anyone and i was you know interested in comics and i was interested in you know baseball cards and kind of whatever and then that was the first time i felt like oh these are my this is my tribe you know and that whether that's and you know to me the the metal scene is just a you know is connected in to the hardcore scene that it's just it's just heavy music you know and it's yeah. just like as far as society is concerned we're definitely a niche sector you know um so i i definitely identify with 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 that a lot but when i say nerd uh keep in mind that's not a pejorative like what you know like me being into comic books being into baseball cards or whatever everything i get into i become a nerd about so it's like to, <laughs> to, to, to me a nerd just means you love it you're obsessed with it and you get like you like when you're getting into uh interviewing you're gonna go and do the homework and get into the nitty-gritty because you're interested in the details. To me, that's just what 
being a nerd is. It's not. And and hell, if anything, it's probably a compliment because all the billionaires now are the 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 nerd generation anyway. So <laughs> totally. But I I guess I always looked at nerds as being a a, a whole like social group within themselves you know like they were the it was like the movies from the 80s but that's you know? what we i'm saying it's like a cliche that's i that, yeah. I never experienced there'd be like two dudes like that in, in my high school even though my high school is kind of <laughs> small but you know yeah that was like well, a that was in the 80s nerds were like you know they were getting picked on and then in the 90s they became billionaires so it all worked I, out but I, f- I feel bad for the nerds now. These kids don't know what it's like to be a nerd. <laughs> you know, everybody seems to everybody's like, no, no, I'm a nerd. I'm a nerd. And they're like, no, wait, but I really am. A nerd. Well, in, 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 <laughs> you in know many what I ways, mean? it went mainstream. You know, you look at, you know, totally Comic Con and then the those all the, the superhero movies going mainstream. And like I said, I, and I think that element is uh, exists in every field. Right. So I'm a basketball fan. So. I'm I'm a, a basketball nerd. Like I'm on these chats with my friends, and we're like just going on these long rants about the, like the eleventh guy on some team that has a losing record. Like that's being a nerd, just kind of just getting getting into the weeds on stuff. Anyway, I think we're getting a little bit in the weeds on on being a nerd right now. <laughs> in the weeds, yeah. <laughs> um, so I think it's kind of fascinating that you were uh you are a book you are a booking agent and you were also a promoter, right? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, when I worked in the music industry, I was in music management and, okay. And you were, uh, you were, you were a musician as well at some point, right? Yeah, yeah. At some point. Yeah, exactly. I toured the country a bunch of times and stuff and, but it was always a means to an end. I never picked up a guitar because I wanted to, you know, learn chords and you know, win over girls. I picked up a guitar because I was sick of guitarists screwing up and not doing what I told them to do. So fine, I'm going to do it and I'll do it right. And, you, you know, and I'll put a band together and, and that's what I did. And for me as well, my brother, who's still a musician, a professional musician, um, uh, you know, he, he, for us, when we when I was in my like metal years and stuff, I uh, uh, you know the first wave. What, I guess what years say, are we talking about? Oh, I don't know. Like you know, give or take this or that. But it was like Listen, I need to my, know. I need to know when you were like playing with like the thrash metal scene. Were you in the new uh, metal world? What era of metal? And, and see. And see, that's it. Is you don't want to be aged. In... You don't want people to know how old you are. Is that what it is? <laughs> no, no, absolutely not. But like, like when I was a musician, and I was, so I was put my put myself through college. I didn't do it in metal. I did it in during the ska wave. Okay, you were so playing I was, ska. That's all right. I, I was, I, I was in a band that was on Moon Sky NYC, and uh, yeah, did did all that stuff for a number of years, and. Uh, uh yeah so the the but like doing that for me this might be sort of touch a nerve for you too show how we're on similar paths for me putting that band together the big selling point was i was going to bond with my brother mm-hmm. and so that was you know that was that was for for me uh, some of the best times of my life and uh but yeah it, it took all of once that band broke up and I'd finished finish college or I'd left the band and, and finished college, uh, that was when I went off to New York City to work in music management and all that stuff because that's what I really had wanted to do. I wanted to manage the band. The problem was that you know we'd be out on the road and if the gig went really well, everybody was happy because we all succeeded. But if we did a gig and 12 people showed up, well, that was my fault because I'm the guy who's running the band. You know what I mean? Yeah. So 
it, that that became a real isolating experience as well. So uh, yeah, so I went to New York City. I got into music management and event production. So I was producing shows at uh, Carnegie Hall and Lincoln Center, all that stuff, and working with uh, big time, bro. Yeah, yeah, I worked for a long time with, um, uh, it's sort of a weird relationship it wasn't directly with, but it was, uh, you know, people like Sting and Paul Simon, Bob Dylan, uh, the uh, Pavarotti in the studio, uh, you know, a bunch of jazz guys, all that sort of stuff. And so I did a little bit of road management for some jazz guys and, and all that sort of thing. And uh, yeah, and then after 9-11 happened, my... Uh, my wife said she wanted to leave New York City, so that's when we moved to Austin, Texas. And at the time, because I I'm sort of a uh, I don't uh, I don't stop working, so you know I would I would do my 60 hours at my job that I absolutely loved. It was like it was like playtime, and I still had energy. So that's when I started the booking agency, and I wanted to keep this relationship with my brother. He needed work, so I was like, I'll find you some wedding gigs and you know corporate gigs and things like that, and. And so that's what I did. And then next thing you know, all of his friends wanted me to book them as well. See, so. man, if I would have known you 10 years ago, you might have saved God forbid, man. Been working the 60 <laughs> hours. You could have been the manager, the booking agent, the promoter, man, our accountant. You could have done everything. You had <laughs> yeah, so much that's energy. Right, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Why, world? Why is it? It's so cruel. It's so- Do you think? Do you think that was part of the reason that that things un, unraveled with God forbid is just not having a support system? Um, yeah, because our kind of descent started really at the when the band was at its peak. We split with this manager called the Rev. You can actually check it out on on the X Man podcast. Um, I, I have a whole interview with with our manager, and you got to understand the the metal community on the industry side is so tight knit that once the manager split with the band then our booking agent who's one of the biggest booking agents wanted to leave the band and so you kind of get cut out from like the club right and once you're kind of out you're on the outside looking in even though the band was selling the most records we had sold we were doing the best it's almost like the industry had kind of decided yeah they're kind of not really that cool anymore and so you (laughs) get so so it was like so the next year after we did Ozfest, our record, you know, hit the Billboard charts, had our biggest debut, and it was like, yeah, you're not going to get on Sounds the Underground. It was like, okay, that's a bum out. And you got to remember that at that time, there was nothing really else going on. We had just done Ozfest, and then all of a sudden, just little things like all of a sudden you're not in contention for this tour. All of a sudden you're not getting this opportunity, and and we kind of bounced around with a few different managers, and it just. You know, and then then the band starts saying, "Hey, maybe this isn't working out. This isn't working out." And then people start saying, "Hey, maybe we should start looking at other things." And that's kind of I think my brother got disillusioned, and once my brother left, it kind of that's how it goes, you know. So yeah, you know, you can look at it as, as one thing. And I would say, with regard to the reason why that our original manager left was because a lot of issues with the band and personality problems and ego stuff and just bullshit. So it's definitely not so many uh, musicians as as you've seen. They get bitter and they blame the world, right? They blame the industry. They blame, oh, people aren't buying records or whatever. And it's just like, no, it's probably our fault. You know, uh-huh. we we were yeah. we were in control of a lot of certain things, but a lot of times you just don't know when you get some success how you're going to react, and not everyone reacts well. And if you're not making the people you're working for a ton of money, you're just like calling them on the phone and calling them assholes and demanding shit but they're not making money they're not going to stick around you know yeah 
Well, the, that's one of the interesting things about, I think, probably the music industry in general, but the metal scene in particular, the industry in particular, is that idea that like if a booking agent or a manager leaves a band, everybody else is very, very... Uh, it's it's just it's harder to be a fresh new band making a new pitch than be a band that somehow has picked up this like uh, ex manager scurvy. You know what I mean? It's it's really a, a interesting thing. It's uh, it's hard to kind of get back in once there's this rumor that the band or the people in it are maybe challenging to work with. I don't yep. know if that was necessarily your situation. Yeah, I think there was, there was probably a, a little bit of that. Um... And then it's also, it falls kind of like, at, the, at that point, it kind of, that's when I kind of emerged as more of the biz, the band business guy. And mm -hmm. I was 25 years old, still figuring things out. I didn't really know what I was doing, but I was doing my best. And if you don't have that one band member, like, for example, Lamb of God had Chris Adler, who was just, had all these natural leadership skills and business acumen, uh... And that opened up certain doors and he's able to kind of leverage certain things. And once the band did get a manager, they were big enough that it could su sustain them. So, you know, I don't really, you know, this is not the God forbid show, sir. We're here <laughs> to talk about you. I see what you did there. That's an in in interrogation. No, Flipping it. No, but hold on real quick though. One question though, is like, it's like when that all goes down, and God forbid, as as a unit is being sort of uh, ostracized to a certain de degree, do you ever like it was like earlier? I'm like, all right, I make sure I know everything before I get. I got to prep for this, etc. I click your name on Wikipedia. It takes me to the God forbid page. Is were you ever worried that after God forbid had dissolved that that ostra ostra ostracizing might be? something that would have afflicted you in the rest of your career? Yeah, I mean, that's... I think that's generally how things go. You have to understand, once... Part of it for me was understanding the reality that from our world, which was the metalcore, hardcore kind of world, in many ways, the band uh, was bigger than the individual, right? So there weren't a lot of people from our world that were professionally trained musicians. So once the band was over, they were pretty much, either, unless they joined another band, they weren't really doing music anymore because we're, you know, I didn't go to school for music. I don't have a degree. So it was like this testing ground, like, hey, can I do this again? And it it would prove that I am actually worthy of that position and not just I was in a cool band. You know, it was like, yeah. you know, so to, to me it was almost like the... um the Dave Grohl uh, analogy of like he did it twice at equal yeah. levels, which is insane. You know, not that God forbid was was that big, but it was like let me try and prove it to myself that it wasn't just a fluke that I'm actually yeah. wor worthy of this position. That was kind of the the challenge I, I set up for myself, um, and that's kind of happening now with uh, with Bad Wolf. So it's you know years, years later on a much bigger le level. Um, so it's kind of, and you know, through efforts way beyond myself, you know, there's so many other people that, that made this stuff happen. I'm kind of along for the ride, but, um, but yeah, it's, it, it's, it's just been a thing of, can I do this as a challenge yeah. and not really having that much of a plan, to be honest. Like I set up these arbitrary numbers, like by the age 35, I need to be doing this or I'm quitting. And then you get there and you're like, that's stupid. 
<laughs> you know, you just because you because you have this idea when you're younger of what a 35 year old should be doing or what a 40 year old should be doing, and then you realize, you know, these are just things you set up um, when you don't understand that that life just has its way of pointing you in, in 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 directions and when you get there you just don't you're going to be a different person when you get there and feel differently so you just have to kind of deal with that when you get there hey this is steve Choi, host of the musicians guild podcast part of the sound talent media podcast network within the four walls of the musicians guild we'll be discussing the habits idiosyncrasies experiences and general psychology of my friends and peers all involved with music in various capacities Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com. Ever wonder what a punch from Elton John feels like? Or how you'd cope with having turned down the chance to be in Nirvana? Or what signal Keith Richards gives when he wants you to get the hell out of his hotel room? Fans of Too Much Effing Perspective don't have to wonder, because they've heard these exact stories and a jillion others on our podcast. I'm Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead. And I'm musician and comedy writer Alan Keller. On the TMEP show, we get guests like Nancy Wilson from Heart, Jeremiah Freights from the Lumineers, and Modern Family's Julie Bowen to tell us things they may have only shared with their therapist, clergy, or a TMZ stringer. So join us on Too Much Effing Perspective. That's E-F-F-I-N-G Perspective. The only podcast you crank up to 11. Hey everyone, this is Tuck from Fit for a King in Off-Road Minivan. Every week I bring you fun interviews alongside your favorite metalcore entertainers with my new podcast, Get Tucked. Join me every Monday with bands like Counterparts, Crystal Lake, like Moths to Flames, and many more. We play unsigned and undiscovered bands, deep dive into each artist's history, and of course provide the greatest breakdowns in current metalcore. Tune in to Get Tucked every Monday, out now through Sound Talent Media. Yeah, I guess it's a fine line between goals and <laughs> what it, what would you call it? The, the, what you had like uh, rule sets, I guess, like or whatever you want to sort of stopping points. If this doesn't happen, then yeah. there's a consequence rather than setting it up the opposite way, which is when this happens, then I'm going to do this other thing, you know, and be able to have this other thing reward myself somehow. Yeah, I mean, I think it's I think Scott Adams, he has like this uh, whole thing about principles over goals like or something like that where you have a set of this is what i do in these scenarios as opposed to having goals because the truth is future you has to cash a check that present you is writing and future you is probably going to feel differently about things so it's a kind of different anyway any anywho um do you do you feel that much different like in what what you your principles are at your age now over say you know 2008 oh vastly i'm like a completely yeah? different person yeah i mean back then i needed to play back then i needed to tour like it was uh filling a certain amount of validation and in my time since even before i i left the band um i'd say going back to like 2010 it was like this reckoning with, hey, man, you, you stay at home and you kind of have to deal with yourself, you know, and, and find out who you really are. Because the lifestyle of touring is it fills in all this stuff so you don't have to think about a lot of other things. You know, it's it's fantasy land. You know, you kind of mm-hmm. get to be on the bus or the or the or the van and, you know, just bury yourself in something and then. You know, it's like, all right, 
load-ins at this time, sound checks at this time, shows at this time, party after the show. What's there is the after party, and and just do it, <laughs> and just do it all over again. And it really was about that for me. Like it was about having fun. Like it wasn't the business side of it was kind of sup- supplementary or you know and and now it's like it's all you know it feels mo- more like work i guess now and um and it's not about partying it's not about you know just there for laughs it's like no this is a career you know so you the stakes are i guess are a little bit higher because you're you know especially at, at my age you know it's like i may never get another opportunity like this so you really have to focus and just work you know and it is fun of course but it's also like don't fuck up (laughs) see i guess that that was always like something that i've always had a hard time with is that i i i don't have fun having fun if that makes sense like all of those social situations like you know the the after parties and things like that after the gigs you know usually like you go back to somebody's house and you're just gonna i just want to crash i just want to go to bed i just went oh we got a party oh shit what the hell do i got you know and all you have to parties there was that uh, kind of pressure (laughs) well as as somebody who didn't drink at the time i've never done drugs you know like all this sort of thing and i'm not really good in group situations i and absurdly uh uh uh, introverted in those kinds of situations in a group setting with strangers and all that stuff so i just was never into it and so the whole time that we were touring back when i'm 19 20 21 years old 22 i guess those three four years it was for me it was constantly thinking about all right so what's the next thing i got to the next opportunity I got to get for the band. So that way they'll stick together because everyone wants, everyone wants to stay together until we get to that next great opportunity. If you've got nothing on the horizon, everybody goes, well, geez, I guess there's nothing to put up with all this other stuff for. I'm going to bail. And that was always my biggest fear. So I was constantly working for what would be next and thinking about what be next, trying to get, you know, some new opportunity and always learning, <laughs> trying to hang out this little carrot in the super far distance of Europe, man, we're going to do Europe. Never did Europe. Yeah. Well, that, that sort of thing. You know, well, it sounds like you were grounded in a way. Maybe that's because you weren't, um, drinking or doing drugs or kind of wrapped up in, I think a lot of those activities, which are egocentric and, and kind of numbing in a, in a, in a, in a fashion, it's a way of, and especially when you're playing because you get a high, you get a connectivity, you get that thing of people worshiping you or however you want to want to want to put it and then the the party and all that kind of extends that feeling and it keeps it keeps it going and it and it's a it's a very unique thing, you know, that that yeah. very few people that 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 truly the rock and roll lifestyle or whatever whatever you want to call it is um you know, that's a very very particularly addictive vibe but it seemed like you were just were a bit more grounded and were into a lot of different things can i ask you your experience playing uh managing booking how did that affect um your kind of the way you related to bands as an as a podcaster well i got a sense of the business side of it uh so when interviewing 
I was always curious about what, especially when we get a band that, you know, had done something interesting with crowdfunding, for example, oh, you know, let's go through that step by step, you know, and I always found it fascinating when they, you know, somebody would say, well, geez, I don't know, we just put a, put out a song and all of a sudden we've got all these streams and we didn't really do anything. It just, you know, it just caught fire. We don't know. I always found that really fascinating because like I've never gotten anything to catch fire and I've worked my ass off every time, you know? And, uh, so yeah, it was always, um, that I always really found interesting and fascinating. And, uh, it, it sort of adds to the mystique of the music business that I'm still a fan of, uh, you know, that that idea that at a certain point, it really is a meritocracy, you know? Well, it's, it's interesting because I think you guys have had some pretty um, in-depth discussions, whether that was from uh, Stevic from uh, 12 Foot Ninja or did you did you guys ever talk to oh. uh, CJ from uh, The Irish Murder? Yeah, yeah, you know? sure did. Well, awesome and, and it's kind of you have these very talented bands who are who are actually having success, but yet they're still this deep struggle right and and maybe that's a, a a factor into just where we're at as an industry right where it's the middle class um has essentially become you know in no man's land right they're not making enough money to really do it full-time and have a decent lifestyle but they're doing well enough where it's kind of stupid to give it up you know, yeah, it's like this weird uh, thing, and you have, and a lot of these guys, like, you know, they're not, they're not twenty one years old. They're in their thirties. They're, they have families. They're married, and they're all trying to weigh, like, what the hell am I doing? What does this make sense? I mean, did you come away with, you know, did it make you more cynical, kind of about the the, the at least the more underground metal world? Well, I, you know, yes and no. I mean, coming from that, like, you know, the, the, the late 80s metal scene where, you know, bands like Anthrax and, and Megadeth were jamming in front of entire stadiums. I mean, it really got to, it's hard to imagine it, but, you know, Judas Priest were playing massive, massive stadiums, and they were making huge. They, they were I, huge. Can, can I can I correct that? They were playing arenas. Arenas. There you go. Okay. Uh, arena holds about fifteen to twenty thousand people. A stadium holds like forty to like a hundred thousand people. Okay. So All right. You got it. Yeah. There's only a handful of arena yeah. bands to be true. Yeah, I mean, you're right. Metallica, you're right. Guns N' Roses. You know, Aerosmith. You know, there's a few. Foo Fighters is now a, a stadium band. But uh, yeah, that's a it's a big difference. But yes, you are correct. Thank I, you. I went back and looked well, at the numbers, and yes, even Anthrax was headlining uh, arenas. Yeah, yeah. So thank you for that correction. But uh, yeah, the uh, uh, and then meanwhile, if you were to look at their, well, you know, how do I put it? Like, did they have? Did they really provide so much value that they deserved a massive wealth? You know, being able to make each one of them making a healthy five figures every single night. You know, I don't know. I don't, eh, who knows? I have no idea. Well, yeah, but, I mean, you're on the booking side. You, you would know that more than anyone. <laughs> yeah, obviously. Are they selling the tickets? Did the, yeah, did well, the promoter make money? Then they're probably uh, worth it. Absolutely. That's, that's absolutely true. 
what I'm trying to draw the comparison to is to bands today who I believe have more talent and are more interesting and are more awesome than even those bands that I loved back in the day. And those bands are struggling. Can I can I, that, can I can I give you can, contend that I think technically yes musicians are better in in many ways but songwriting is not better I don't think there's a you know is there a, a record as good as Rust in Peace you know is there a oh, song as good tons. is it I mean I'm just saying there's like five songs off Among the Living that who <laughs> like seriously who's I'm talking about these are songs that have lasted. You know, for you're talking thirty years that are still they can play them anywhere in the world, and they there's a there's a a a, a mastery and a, and a and a dedication to writing songs. You know, Slayer with you know a South of Heaven. Like I I, right. I don't think the the modern bands are tuneful in the aggregate in the way that those big bands were back then. That would substantiate, hey. This could be a um, on a major label, right? So to me, what happened is it split, and there became the the mainstream metal bands, right? The Asking Alexandria's, the I Prevails, the Five Finger Death Punches, and they kind of are playing to that world. And then the rest of the metal world just basically said, "Nah, we're gonna not partake in that at all, and we're pretty much just gonna play to our scene." And they specifically write songs that don't do that. Like, they specifically don't write a painkiller. They specifically don't write uh, a run to the hills. You right. Know? Um, and so there's this kind of, like, fight because they almost feel, I feel like if an underground band did do that, they would feel like it's somehow betraying their, uh, I don't know, their kitschiness or their, um, what makes it cool. I don't know. And yeah. like, like, there's a just a dividing line between we're a mainstream band and we're a underground band or we're a not mainstream band there's like this whereas like back then i think you could be slayer you could be both yeah right they were like and, a, 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 a band that has underground credibility but they had hit songs yeah and, and what's in, in the metal world you know yeah and it's hilarious now because like slayer threaded a needle and there's all these other bands ever since that have been trying desperately to do the same damn thing and and at a certain point Nobody else has at this point, like in in the way the music business is, nobody has the luxury to try to thread that needle. You know, you you gotta, you really do have to make a a an effort to reach a wider audience if you want to actually make a living doing music, and if you are going to continue to growl and you're going to continue to, um, you know, throw, uh, you know, your, your track one is going to have a, you know, a minute long blast beat at the front. Well, you know, look, I, I, I'm sorry, but Chick-fil-A isn't going to come around offering you ad money anytime soon, you know? So you either be happy with that and with your, you know, small scene and the small money that comes out of it, or not and but i'll tell you what like back in the day uh martin i think his name is martin can't remember his last name the dude was in uh, pestilence and then went on to asphyx played bass and uh, i remember interviewing him back in you know way back in the day and he where are they from the netherlands or sweden and i was like i remember asking him back then when i was like 18 years old how in the world did you 
do you guys afford to live making the music that you're making? And he's like, oh, we live in this great country where we, we get paid as artists uh, from the, the state. And, you know, they, they're just happy that we're exporting art that's made from here to the rest of the world. And I remember, go, wow, that's crazy. The day, uh, the day Godless became a socialist. Well, I'll tell you what, <laughs> it, it, having moved to, well, all right. So when I was living in the States uh, up until uh, three years ago, I was pretty, pretty much, I'd say pretty close to a libertarian, right? Um, and uh, the classic libertarian. So the idea of, uh, you know, drugs should be legal. And I'm pretty much still of, of the, the belief that almost all of them should be. Uh, and then, uh, you know, no war. But then on the other hand, uh, you know, low taxes and and uh, very, very little in the uh, terms of a social safety net. But once I moved to Ireland, I had decided to suspend my political beliefs for at least a few years while I test out living in a system that is, uh, well, a lot more, uh, uh, well, a lot less libertarian than the United States is. And it's been eye-opening. It's yeah. changed a lot of my my opinions on things. I explained. And, well, for one, uh, I think that libertarianism probably was, uh, I would agree with Paul Ryan, that it's an unknown ideal. But my difference with him is that I believe that that was probably a great economic system for the 20th century. But for the 21st, due to economies of scale with the fact that one company, instead of being able to at most service uh, you know, a few million people in your neighboring states, and that's as far as you could reach because that's as far as you can deliver anything. Uh, it, it's expensive to make a phone call anywhere further. Now, like you can have a company that can, uh, you know, its tentacles can go over the entire planet and do so very, very easily with incredible amount of economies of scale. And in the meantime, wiping out a lot of other entrepreneurial endeavors and small businesses you know and then you got ai and you got robotics and the fact that the manufacturing se uh, sector has been demolished not just because of cheap labor overseas but i would argue even more so because of smart robots doing those jobs mm -hmm. so, so here in the 21st century i'm not quite sure how a laissez-faire capitalist society is supposed to survive when the means of labor are in the hands of unpaid and un you know extremely extremely cheap robots i mean how do you compete with that i don't think you can so uh yeah i can't i can't disagree with anything you said there and usually me and you we're just we're just at it. <laughs> yeah totally you, you, i don't you come at me bro on twitter all the time <laughs> you're like doc you're so wrong well, see now with the now with the success of Bad Wolves, you are Doctor Coil. Doctor so, Coil. You know, Doctor Coil. Maybe maybe uh, my uh, home home uh, college uh, Rutgers will give me an honorary doctorate. <laughs> yeah, there you go. We'll see. But I think I don't think that socialism is necessarily the best way for the 21st century. But at the moment. It does seem to be making an argument towards being a better way. I, I just went to the to the freaking uh, pharmacy. I got one prescription. I just went there this afternoon, and this drug cost me 130 euro. It's gonna cover me for the next like two and a half months. I used to pay 
$130 every half week for this same thing but when I lived in the States. Are you serious? It, and there is a cap. There is a cap in Ireland that you cannot spend more than 130 euro on drugs for your family in a given month. So it's, I mean, I, I'm I, sorry, I, but I was told that that leads to uh, Stalinism. <laughs> well, I'm pretty I, sure it leads you know, to breadline, sir. Are you a communist? I'd be really curious as to whether the <laughs> amount of drugs that people are taking here are, you know, far, far greater and costing the state far, far more than it is in the United States. I, I, I would uh, hazard a guess based on the, uh, uh, the, the number of uh, pill bottles that I see in anybody's uh, medicine cabinet over the age of 65 that it's nowhere close to the amount of drugs that are being taken in the U.S., and, um, and, and so that's, all right, here's another. So I used to work for a farm, uh, pharmacy company when I first got to, uh, Ireland, I had struggling to find work and it's a whole nother story, but I finally got a job, took, took one that offered it to me, which was a, uh, a farm, uh, yeah, a, uh, um, uh, uh, yeah, uh, a company that just, they, they make tons of different drugs all over the world. Right. And they had a, a top us exec come in to talk to us and give a pep talk or whatever. There was a Q and a period. The young woman sitting next to me asked him, why do we only, uh, sell treatments? Why don't we sell cures? And he looks straight back at her and he goes, we just don't do that. Next question. Yeah, I was shocked. I, I saw something recently with another executive or something came out basically questioning the um, profitability. They're like, how how can, how do we make money if we come up with a cure? This doesn't yeah. really this doesn't really work for our business model. And you know, while I do believe that the profit motive is very very uh, uh, you know compelling for people to develop new ways, new treatments, new awesome ways to save lives and make people's lives better. I also am very skeptical that, um, you know, how many kids go to college because they want to like, you know, they want to beat some like disease because it killed grandma, you know what I mean? And they go in with all these great intentions and I don't know what happens along the way, but somewhere along the way, they don't want to save grandma. They just want to treat her. And that, I, I don't know how you get away from that in, you know, this Ayn Randian universe of, uh, of, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> of the current economic, uh, medical model in the United States. Yeah. Well, I, I'd say my political, evolution has been more to become i don't know i feel more like a centrist now and i i think ultimately what's going to be the best solution is kind of a, a hybrid system which i think most of the west are hybrid systems right it's just how much it leans towards this direction and how much it leans to, to to that direction because the truth is we we know that fundamentally uh, what incentivizes people and so capitalism has that element of all right this is going to get this these people motivated to do xyz if they know that they might be able to get this on the back end by putting in this effort um, but we also understand that hey without these um these social safety nets you know uh 
you know, we think about how much the lives lives of seniors has improved, how much the lives of disabled people has improved, um, you know, and and what we see in in most of the West outside of America is, is universal health coverage. Um, we see giving more to the arts, like you said, and that the guy from uh, Asfix, and I think you know, be, you know, America. The the main issue we have is just that. Um, we think we're the center of the universe and um and when you and many people i don't think have a great sense of history i think we have in many ways we're we're living in this uh choose your own reality uh type of of way And, and i think what that tends to do a lot of americans uh really buy into the idea of exceptionalism and believing our own mythology a lot of which is just that mythology right well, about- the big, one of the big things in libertarian uh, libertarianism was this idea that well the reason that the united states did so well in the late 1940s through the 1980s 1990s was because uh you know capitalism is great and we're so uh, innovative and, and you know the state doesn't get in the way and there's some argument to be made there, but there's also an argument to be made that the United States had this incredible manufacturing sector that was developed to handle World War II, and then you've got all of Europe has been bombed out completely, and they need a ton of stuff. In Japan. <laughs> yeah, and so the United States manufactured it, and the rest of the world bought it, and that, and not, you tie that with a huge oil boom that happened around that time, and you got a pretty fair argument for that's those are the reasons well, why there, America boomed in well, the last half of the century. Well, there's that, and there's also you had all of the um, New Deal policies come into effect, and then the other big thing was. Um, there's actually I forget where this this statistic comes from, but essentially when you do a ratio between the uh, percentage of the population that is working age in comparison to how many are in retirement age, um, so basically you want your working population to be big and your retirement age to be small. When that ratio is really good, economies always do really well, and so that was the baby boom, right? So you had yep. this huge working force. And then you had a small uh, elder class, and and when the opposite of that happens, which is what's happening in in China now because of the um, their uh, their one baby policy, they're going to have all these old people and have less working people. And that they, so th- so there's usually when things like this happen, it's probably twenty things, and then people like to pick their favorite uh, factor that that uh, confirms their own bias. Um, and and tell tell their story but i think it is i think it is a lot a lot of those things um but kind of you know i you know i've I've had phil levante on on this show a couple times who's a pretty staunch uh, libertarian but but actually very um honest about its kind of idealistic nature that it's not really a realistic um you know edict to 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 judge a society i think my main issue with libertarianism in, in its purity is that it tends to be middle class white guys um that, that have good yep uh upbringing and i notice it's like people who've been got all the benefits of a stable society in a wealthy country and i think and so they're they've been taught all the right things how to behave how to save money how to work hard 
and then they say, well, everyone can do this because I can do it. Um, yep. And but they, even but even more than that, like society is built for them to succeed. You look at like you remember when Ferguson happened. I mean, uh, uh, I, I, what's the the young man who was murdered by the cop? there? Michael Brown. Michael Brown. Thank you. You know, the the most interesting thing that came out of that, besides the start of the Black Lives Matter movement, was the look into what was going on in the community of of ferguson that imprisons oh, yeah, his school his school was like on, on probation for like five years in a row or something yeah they they there was all the stuff going on with ferguson they were like they yeah. their their uh police force was under investigation because they were yep. uh you know unlawfully uh targeting people yeah the, the the society itself you know the root causes were were fucked up to begin with and yeah it was like 75% of the people in the community owed money to the municipal courts because they've been arrested for any and you know anything that anybody else who's got the same color skin as I does seven times a day without even thinking about it and they were being you know fined and then when they couldn't show up to the court because they got to work cuz goddamn it everybody yells at them you got to get a job and keep that job they got to keep the job then they get fined again i mean it was it was there's no way to get out of that that is living in an economic quicksand and you know i would hazard to guess that there are a lot more fergusons in that respect in the United States than there are not. And how in the world are you supposed to to argue the statistics to say that these communities uh, um, uh, are somehow not succeeding only because they, you know, the, the, you know, the cliches of they just, you know, have the wrong attitude when they go in for a job interview, they don't study, you know, all that sort of stuff, or they only have a, you know, single parent and therefore didn't learn manners or what, I don't, what freaking excuses there are. At the end of the day, they're in uh, nutritional wastelands, they're educational wasteland and, then beyond that, there are all these things that are set up to make them fail economically. When you, you know, high interest loans, uh, the fact that the grocery stores charge almost twice as much as you do in the suburbs, all that stuff. I mean, it's ridiculous. Yeah, the, I think these problems are are massive. And the the political uh, kind of on the other end of, of politically how you solve it is is really, really murky because when you know, more politics on the left will go out and say, hey, we have communities of color and they're struggling and you you list what you just listed. What that in turn does when you use that, that type of language and framing, then you have pretty much what happened with Trump where it's, hey, when, you're, when, you, when you solo out other people, that means you're kind of saying you don't support these people. And it and it creates this uh, this culture of resentment, you know, which I I think has been building really since like the late seventies, um, you know, as a result of like things like affirmative action and the um, kind of the you know the Reagan era where they kind of were rolling back, you know, going against the the the, the quote unquote welfare queens and all this stuff and that um, culture of resentment that anytime you try and go out of your way to uplift. A particular community whereas you know what has become very hot term identity politics um i would i would argue all politics is identity politics but yep um 
but so so that's the the tough thing is like how do you try and uplift this community while also making sure that you know there are poor white communities where they're struggling too and they don't feel like hey i don't have any white privilege i'm living in a trailer park what are you talking about i'm strong there's no jobs in my town it's like how do threading that needle i feel like is um is almost an impossibility these days yeah i think it probably is but i i mean i'm a huge fan of uh technologies and new technologies and i find uh you know what is coming in artificial intelligence uh is i mean it's it's so close at this point it's scary and it will radically change everyone's lives and perhaps that'll be this uh you know it's a it's a tsunami that's going to come to shore and it's going to it's going to wipe all of these toys off of the sand so you know I, I i guess i'm i'm of the mind that um a lot of these problems are going to be eradicated by a much, much, much bigger problem that nobody is prepared to face, and it will be everybody's going to going to be facing it. Obviously, they're going to be facing it in different levels, you know, because uh, the 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 struggle is even further away for those who you know to need to learn uh, the right kinds of uh, computer science skills, but don't have access to a computer. And even if they did, the RAM speed and the hard drives too small to actually learn anything that would crunch. Big Big data to do machine learning for AI and you know but the kid in the suburb can do it you know mm-hmm. and that so that's a, that's a whole nother bag of worms to there's a really great documentary on YouTube you got to watch it's called um, do you even do you know this computer or do you trust this computer I think it's called I'll, I'll find you the link and I'll, I'll send it to you uh, it's a really fascinating uh, documentary and I've read two or three reviews trying to uh, detract it and say why it doesn't make sense mm-hmm. and I don't buy anything that they're saying right on um, so real real quick I mean for those who are still listening for our, our little political <laughs> tirade but we were gonna you know I'll, I'll probably talk about it in the intro but me and you were gonna talk politics anyway because it's something we've discussed online we've talked on the show a little bit about it and it's uh it's fun to kind of go back and forth because I, I i really like your perspective even if we don't agree on everything but um uh so you being in ireland for the trump era what is it um what are you taking away or is do you think the um this term like trump derangement syndrome do you think that is more pervasive than the actual activity of 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 what's going on like are people freaking out too much or from your perspective is the freak out uh um um does it make sense uh yeah i think it makes all the sense in the world and for a number of reasons um one my wife and i talk about this all the time it was one of the reasons that we had decided to leave the united states we call it the boiling was it the boiling frog? You ever heard that analogy? Oh, is that from is um, the, the, from what's his name? I'm uh, sure. Not sure. Uh, the, the podcast, uh, Common Sense. Uh, uh, I don't know. Uh, he might have mentioned it, but my wife had been talking about it for years because she is re- always Dan read like Carlin. these. Dan you know, Carlin. Yeah, Dan Carlin. Yeah, but like this idea that like the United States, in my mind, had been boiling for a long time. Uh, long before Trump, mm-hmm. um, in what way? I, I didn't predict. Tr- I didn't predict Trump by uh, at all. By the way, shocked when he won. Yeah, uh, but if you were here, uh, who would you have voted for? Uh, hard to say. Pro- 
Yeah, probably um, whoever the libertarian candidate was. Gary, and what's his face? <laughs> yeah, yeah, because – and not for any real substantive reason this time. Uh, in the past, I always did it because I supported the idea of uh, the libertarians. Now I like the idea of voting third party because I just want to disrupt the two-party system. Yeah, uh, which I think think has failed the the country quite a bit. But you guys, I haven't you guys really did that. You really disrupted it. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, like I haven't thought about it much since that the the last election as to like, all right, so what next? I think, that, yeah, I, the, you know, for example, Cory Booker was fantastic the other day uh, during the questionings of um, uh, all Zuckerberg. the new. Uh, no, this new Secretary of State dude that they're trying to get oh, through. Oh, Pompeo. Uh, yeah, Pompeo. And he was fantastic. But at the same time, I hate the fact that Cory Booker had voted against cheap drugs coming in from Canada because he tried to make the argument that these are dangerous, like people are dying in the streets in Canada. No, you're in the pocket of the pharma- uh, pharmaceutical in- industry. Well, so, can, I ask you know, can I ask you a question about like, that? Because this is probably one place we do disagree. Um and I think this is what I would call the, um, I guess, the Glenn Greenwald intercept um, kind of form of of politics, which is the politics of purity, that I can agree with you on 10 things. But if the 11th thing I'm, I don't like, then you then you're evil or you're terrible. And this is like and you so, you know, and I don't I don't know if you would you describe it like is. That is that are they leftist? I don't know what what category you put them in, um, but um, but I don't I don't I just don't think that that's really fair. No one like I can't find anyone on the left that's not named Bernie Sanders that that sector likes, really, and yeah. I don't, I don't really well, know what to to. It's like no one's going to be perfect. There's no perfect anyone. So you're right, gonna, but we're talking. I can't like if you were to like or put these on a scale like okay a Cory Booker during what is going to ultimately end up being is he going to run? Mean- oh, of course he's going to run. Okay, I'll yeah, vote for him. He's right, from he's New Jersey, run. yo, Nork, New Jersey. Cory <laughs> Booker got my vote. But, <laughs> but I mean, he gives like a, a a pretty meaningless but really fun uh, uh, reaming of Pompeo, and you know catches him out with actually really really intelligent and uh, reasoned uh, 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 argument, which I thought was fantastic and right off the top of his head, very impressive. You know all that stuff that you don't get from a lot of the leadership nowadays. But then at the other hand, like. That is a momentary thing. It's not even something I'm like necessarily agreeing or disagreeing with. It's more like I was entertained by. Mm-hmm. But the idea that he is squashing the ability for people to get access to inexpensive drugs changes the lives of millions of people and perhaps ends the lives of millions of people if we're going to get really crazy, you know, extreme on it. And my feeling is that his argument is not an argument his his argument was an excuse so that way he can continue to be in the pocket of the pharmaceutical okay, that's, industry that's fine I, I got you pretty much already said that but what my that's, my, 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 my point is is because i think if you're a, a senator i would argue that almost every decision you make affects a lot of lives so if it's if you you agree with 
a hundred votes they did and disagree with one, is that I'm saying is that is that a a politics of purity and is that effective and are, and if that's what it is, are you actually because the thing is you can only vote for who's on the ballot, right? Right. But and, but it's but you're assuming that every vote has the same weight. They don't. They the don't. I'm not, I'm, I'm not saying that, but many do. Is what I'm saying is that that there are there are many that that do control that do factor in people's lives so what, I, what i'm saying is that so because of that does that mean this is someone who doesn't have morals this is someone that does not have the character befitting of where i what I'm, what I'm saying is that i think one of the things we forget about is that to become a cory booker to become a barack obama some of that is playing ball you know we can we all can't be uh you know have 50-year careers in vermont you know, and kind of come up, come up, come up through the, you know, the Bush leagues, uh, you know, uh, and we, when you're coming up in Chicago, you're coming up in New York, New Jersey, you have to just to get in the position to run for some of these offices, you probably do have to play ball or you're never going to get there. Like, so it's like, it's almost built into the system that that these are, you know, we got to deal with what we have. I don't know. Maybe I'm, you know, a little too compromising in that regard. But certain politicians do seem to be, to have a, a, a stronger moral character than others. And I would put Cory Booker in there. And and, and I, I don't know all this stuff. And maybe if, if, if this is what he had to do is like, listen, sometimes you have to compromise. Can we deal with politicians that sometimes compromise? Or would we have to have these people that are, unrelenting but sometimes you're unrelenting you'll never get the shot you know to actually be uh, in the position i don't know gerrymandering certainly has something to do with it but the success of the gop but that doesn't deal with the, the senate that doesn't have anything to do with the senate though. exactly totally totally but this idea of being pretty damn extreme and uncompromising has gotten neil gorsuch onto the supreme court and has gotten a hell of a lot uh, so you know, it's gotten the GOP, both houses of Congress, and the president. Oh no, 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 no! You know, as a party, you can be unrelenting and uncompromising. I'm talking about as an individual who's building a political career. Um, yes, is, and is my argument is it, but my yeah. argument. Go my ahead. argument would be that when you look at most of these guys in the House, when the GOP guys are running, they've got to stay extreme and remain extreme, or else the Tea Party folk were going to run against them. Yeah, but that's and they the didn't House. want that. Well, you're 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 yeah. talking apples and oranges. I was talking about oh, a senator or or presidential candidate. Anyone can get nominated. Can can win a House election. <laughs> like they're they've got like what does that dude uh, go go mayor or whatever that dude dude's name is. Uh, I'm Go. voting for you, Doc. Come on, you gotta run. Well, Anybody can win. You can dude, win. I've seen some of these people that are, that are in the house, and they're just, they're, <laughs> you know, you just say any crazy thing. You know, you if you ran as a Republican, that you know Obama is literally Satan. You could probably win in like Alabama or something. But the but yeah, but the same is true in the Senate. They've got extreme Republicans who have been running for Senate seats. Now, the most extreme of them are is, not. It, it is more moderate. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But, you know, they nearly got a child rapist to be the senator from Alabama. I mean, it's Alabama, man. <laughs> but what I'm saying is that, like, th that that strategy has worked as a party and, I would argue, for a fair number of the politicians for the right. 
for the left, I think it might be time to take that stand as well because compromising gets you you know, really awkward moments in the press that Hillary Clinton has been as experienced not once, but in two election cycles and both times she lost. Thank God. Well, so you're saying you, you definitely prefer Trump being president than no, no, why thank God. Well, because she should have lost. And it's not a matter of like who should have won. She should have lost. Trump should have lost too. But she should have lost. She's a she was a terrible person, a terrible candidate, and you know I would say an emblem of the kind of compromising politician that you would be looking for. And I would suggest that in the age of information, people are not interested in these folks who are trying to give nods to their corporate donors while at the same time still trying to act like they're for the people. Yeah, I mean I think uh, there's a lot of truth to what you're saying there, um, and I think. Uh, you know, hopefully, you know, and, and that thing is, is I've kind of tried to keep as open a mind uh, through this this presidency because I think, um, like of other people who probably lean lean to the left, even though, like I said, I feel like more I'm a centrist. Um, there was a shell shock factor in kind of living with the reality of this. All right, this is surreal and just weird, and um, and it is just. Every other day, there's something crazy happening. But then you kind of become um, immune to it. You know, it becomes commonplace. And then, so with that, you can kind of figure out, okay, what what is really going on? And if anything, I think people have become a lot more politically engaged, like regular people. Um, people are, are, are paying attention a little more. And it makes people kind of realize, hey, these things kind of matter. So maybe you should pay attention and hopefully... The one thing we can take with Trump is that, you know, maybe there is a little frankness. And even though he's the biggest liar and bullshitter, but there's also <laughs> that time, like, but he's also sometimes the most frank, right? So, yep. like, maybe that's one thing we would want more of out of our politicians a little more frankness, a little more humanity, and not, hey, I'm giving my political speech and I'm doing these points. It's like, it's so kind of outdated. Um, and, 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 and like, 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 like you said, like, if anything, even though I'd much rather have Hillary Clinton as president than, than Trump, um, yeah, I mean, her compromising and her kind of just lack of authenticity, um, you know, rang, rang true. And it's really of another era and we're kind of ready for that next era, but we don't really know who that's going to be. You know. I think it's sort of it, it goes to like everything, you know, just, you know, musicians, uh, 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 artists, uh, you know, our movie stars, everybody that there's so much noise out there and and we're getting so much uh, thrown at us that those moments of real just come through it's like the the woman laughing with the with the chewbacca mask yeah. you know it, it's it's like it, it's yeah it's funny but it's real and when we see that and we see real we're all attracted to it because we can all relate to it and it's so rare and i think that like you said he's as much of a liar as he is uh he came across to these people as real and I don't want to try to dissect Trump because how the hell do I know this yeah. guy's 
fucking nuts. Uh, and, uh, you know, and I'll add, just in case there's any Trump supporter who's still listening, uh, every, you know, like in the States, when I go to the States and I visit, I have to be careful who I mention Trump to or bring up anything related to politics at this point, which is a very different, a different uh, environment from the environment that I left. You know, you could still have a, an engaging conversation. Not not much anymore. You got to get worried about how upset somebody's going to be if you say something positive or negative about the current president of the United States. Here in Europe, it is a given. It is a given. There is not a single Trump supporter on this side of the ocean. Everybody, everybody knows that it's nuts. And yeah. I think that's also part of that whole boiling frog idea, which is that you know i think everybody's so in it and sees it so closely in the states they don't realize just how batshit crazy it really is yeah i mean i know that there are some trump supporters that you know follow me on twitter and probably listen to the show and i'm you know i try and offer my opinion while also not hopefully keeping people in and say i think the biggest problem is polarization and so i want to create an environment where we can disagree um i want to create an environment where we can disagree but um but still be able to have the conversation and respect each other as as people and that so that's why i kind of a little bit reject the idea of like well they're going extreme this way so let's go let's stick to our guns here because what we're seeing is that now the left is getting more left and the right is it's almost like obama made the right go more right and now uh, Trump is making the left go more left, and that middle is just getting, you know, kind of, you know, it's, it, I don't say it's evaporating, but it's become, you know, we feel, I feel less uh, solidarity there that we have to be able to find what, what we can agree on, and, or else we're not going to get anywhere. And I think a lot of times, in a, if you do have a democratic system, probably everyone should feel a little unsatisfied. Right. Like everyone doesn't really get all what they want. Like, you know, so you're always kind of nipping and uh, tucking at the the edges to kind of pull a little your way. Um, but usually when someone gets everything, then that means the people who completely disagree with that are going to be really, really pissed off. So when we were talking about economic systems, right, and what how the 21st century economic system probably has to evolve, I would argue because of just how rapidly technology is moving politics and economic systems have to evolve super fast and i don't think that they'll respond quick enough in an environment that is hell-bent on compromise yeah well i i, I just think that's the nature of of things because if someone's got to win that means someone's got to lose and so that's and that's how um uprisings start you know, right, so. but I I don't know that that's necessarily true. I think that, you know, uh, I hate to say it, but some people don't know what's good for them. <laughs> I, I I see what you're saying. It's like it's almost like if there became nationalized healthcare in America, a lot of people would go crazy at the beginning, but then eventually they'd be like, "Oh, this is kind of cool." Yeah, yeah, I know I mean, what you're that, saying. That's exactly right, and and I think that that uh, you know if. You know, instead of, you know, shaking your fist at the person who's not the same color as you are, who is able to take uh, have a, a cost of living uh, allowance, instead you're getting one, too. 
I don't think people are out on the streets complaining about that. I mean, hell, it's worked for Alaska for a long time. Uh, so I, I don't know if uh, – I think that, that the – at the end of the day, the the areas of the country that support Trump, if China is to put forward these uh, economic sanctions and, and tariffs that they're talking about that are going to be focused on uh, communities that supported Trump, then the, you're going to have a lot of people out on the streets even when they got what they wanted. Well, I would I, only counter that is I think most of this stuff uh, revolves around emotion, not necessarily on facts on the ground. And what the Trump era has proved is it doesn't matter what you what message you say is true, as long as it feels like it's true, then people will react to that more than the reality on the ground. So ultimately, in a, I guess in a sense, politics is always what it always has been, which is a PR game. And if you can sell the most uh, convincing message, and that's what's going to work. Uh, just want to ask you one more question about politics, and we can uh, maybe try and wrap this up. But do you <laughs> do you feel hope, or do you feel you know that things like as you said, the frog on the boiling plate? Is this just going to get worse? Is this eventually going to uh, that frog going to explode or or fly off into the uh, woods or something? Uh, I I was born and raised in the United States, the son of an immigrant. And uh, was taught to, you know, be as patriotic as can be. And uh, I became very, very disenfranchised over time. And, uh, or not, not that's not the word, not disenfranchised, but dis disillusioned over time as to the, the country I was born and raised in. It was not the country I was sold uh, as a kid. And um, I do not see a way for the country to get off the road that it's on uh, at this time there's there's too much derision and and too much conflict and everybody is uh, uh, too distracted uh, I, I think the United States is going to implode um, what is what is what does that mean implode though I think I think well you know an implosion of a very large country is going to mean I think uh, probably increasing levels of violence uh, but uh, more importantly, I think it's just going to lead to uh, huge amounts of uh, unemployment and poverty. I think that the the difference between those who have succeeded economically and those who cannot is going to be humongous. I think that old people, you know, it was funny, like I think it was uh, like 10 or 14 years ago. I can't remember when Ron Paul was debating and somebody asked him in the debate, you know, if you get rid of the uh, uh, health system uh, uh, and somebody can't afford, we're going to have people just dying in the streets. And he's like, yep. <laughs> and, and of course you know he's out of the running for the presidency immediately uh I, but i think he was right i think that that's gonna be what happens you know you know do i you know you, you say those words you picture old people crawling on along a curb begging for help i don't think it looks like that i think it looks a little bit more like puerto rico where nobody actually sees it yeah but it happens so to pivot to our earlier part of our conversation, do you have hope for heavy metal and heavy music? Oh, my God. Have you heard the new Parkway Drive song? Unbelievable. I did Have hear you it. heard Architects? Oh, it's like the greatest so song metal's ever had. Doomsday? Oh, 
Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, good. It's amazing. Have you heard this song called Learn to Live? I oh have. man. It's a good one. It's a good one. So good. So good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. No, well, no. I got I got plenty of optimism for metal, man. And and I I I think that what part of what makes the the new economic model for metal uh while it's a challenge, it also makes it so that people are no longer doing it for the wrong reasons. They are doing it because they love it. Yeah. Um so is when is the Godless podcast coming out? Oh man, I really want to do one. I really, really do. Uh but you gotta understand Chuck was the Chuck was the muscle and and the real talent behind uh uh the Chuck and Godless pairing and so But he's the it, one that wanted to stop the show, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. It was his call. Uh, so I, I you it's know, not that I, hard. even I do it. <laughs> if I can do it, anybody can do it. No, you know? but dude, dude, like I listen to your I'm podcast a lazy when, Luddite. <laughs> before, before you do the interviews and you're, you know, sometimes you're like just sort of monologuing. Like I've sat down with my laptop and tried that. I can't do it. I really, really can't. I need somebody to bounce off of. And you know, what was great about Chuck is he would lob these softballs and it would just be, it would end up being so much fun to kind of go back and forth. And, uh, so I, I don't know. I, and I don't know if I want to do, uh, interviews again. Uh, as much as I love doing them, there's so many people doing really great ones. You're doing really great ones. And I love listening to those conversations. And uh, I don't know if I've got much to add anymore. Interesting. Well, I, I would say this, your um, your voice is definitely missed. And we, you know, it's funny, we did this whole thing. We, uh, we didn't actually talk about um, atheism at all. Uh, <laughs> we didn't get to talk. No, no, um, no. God talk. Actually, do you know that Ryan Downey has a has a religious, uh, spiritual based podcast? I love Ryan Downey. You There's should, no you way should, in hell I'll listen to his podcast. <laughs> no, but you should you should do that one because it's uh, yeah? you know yeah talk about some talk some shit. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I I yeah, Ryan's an awesome awesome dude and. Uh, uh, yeah, you know, it's funny, like, you know, when we first started the podcast, I was still in that phase of being angry uh, at God for not being there, you know? That son of a bitch. <laughs> we, yeah, exactly. So, you know, it was it was kind of, it, it, it felt good, and it was, um, yeah, it felt good to get angry at God, you know? Yeah. And as, as time goes by, after a while, it's sort of like it's just such a given that there's nothing there that, you know, there's just nothing much to get angry about anymore. Right on. All right. Well, stay not angry. Uh, I I can almost guarantee you I'll be coming your way uh, for an actual tour at some point Ex- because of how, Ex- how well the song is done. So I'll definitely be in touch because I love Ireland and it's uh, always, I was literally there, the, but, you know, by the way, the reason I didn't reach out, I was there for literally one day and had no time <laughs> to do anything. So. Oh, it's all good. You're, the The place where you guys did the TV spot was like two blocks from my work. I Are mean, you it's serious? Like, now I feel. Now I do feel bad. I would have invited <laughs> I like, you there. I didn't know about it till the next day. I was like, "Oh, you gotta be kidding me!" Well, the thing oh, is, for some man. reason, I thought you like lived in like the hills 
or something. <laughs> I didn't know you lived like in the city, which I probably should have put two and two together. So it's it's all good. It's all good. <laughs> anyway, well, I do I do look forward to seeing you at some point, Doc. We've never met in person, and uh, I love your show. I and I have so much respect for you, and uh, especially what you've been able to accomplish uh, and overcoming adversity. And it's been just amazing to watch. Well, thank, so, you. thank you. Well, you, you guys have been big supporters from day one. You kind of gave me an outlet to talk some shit and have some fun and kind of get some reps doing this podcast thing. And, and and even just listening to your show, you guys are just always very, very kind to me. So it's it's a uh, it's amazing. I'm glad I could kind of pay it forward and, and get your story out there and let people know, man. Godless is the man. Thank you so much, I'm, brother. Thank you, Doc. Bye bye. Take care. So there you go. I hope you enjoyed that. My conversation with the man Godless. Yeah, I got that done right before I left for tour and I leave for tour again tomorrow. Going to be back out on the road doing a headline tour with Bad Wolves. Uh, we have some bands open up. Who we got playing? Oh, we're co-headlining with From, Ash- From Ashes to New and we have Diamante opening up. So I'm really excited about that. I don't know if we're ready to headline, but you know what? We're going to do it. Go out there, put our big dick on the table pulsating you know that's disgusting i don't know what's wrong with me guys i think the coffee is wearing off you know might be time for round two anyway thank you guys so much for listening to the show please tell your friends please head over to apple podcasts and rate and review the show what else can i ask for you guys send me money you know if you come to the shows you know bring me liquor and donuts uh actually don't bring me any of that stuff because i'm like guys i'm trying to lose some weight over here jesus christ i don't know i think i'm very very self-concerned with my uh physical condition at the moment so i'm, I'm gonna get on it i'm right after i'm gonna go here i'm gonna go to the elliptical i burn some calories you know what was that lady susan powder used to teach people how to dance or or work out and stuff i'm gonna be like her all right get a l- nice little blonde crew cut you know do some uh, some of those side crunches and stuff. It's going to be good. Anyway, guys, I'm out of here. Mama motherfucking out. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. One Hit Thunder is a podcast where we both celebrate and have a good laugh about bands and artists that had just one hit that we all know. Each week, we're joined by a guest from the world of music or comedy to learn more than you ever thought you would about some songs that you can't forget. And we decide if they brought the One Hit Thunder or nothing more than a one hit blunder. Look, if you listen to the show, you're probably going to laugh, and I guarantee you're going to crush next time the bar has music trivia. Tag Team, Jane Child, Meredith Brooks, Looking Glass, Sean Mullins, Eiffel 65, EMF, Crash Test Dummies, Crazy Town, Chumbawamba. We have hundreds of episodes in our back catalog and a new episode each week. So pass the duchy, make sure you're connected, and subscribe to One Hit Thunder wherever you get your pods.